0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. On this episode, I sit down with a canine handler and trainer, and I want to distinguish that this is an operational handler and trainer, and it's somebody who I have been watching for a number of years now, so I finally get to have the uh, privilege of interviewing him. The background of our next guest is... Like I said, somebody who works operationally quite a bit, has an extensive training background, has done special projects from the military to civilian to now operationally for the UK government. And without any further ado, welcome to the show, Stu Phillips. Stu, thank you for coming on.
1: Hi, Cameron. Uh, well, pleasure to be here. And thank you for asking me to come along. <laughs>
0: Oh, absolutely. And like I was saying, uh, I get a lot of enjoyment out of interviewing people like you who stay active working with a dog in some type of operational thing. Um, But with that said, to kind of get there so the audience gets to know a little bit more about you, how did you get into dogs and how did you get to where you're at today with working detection dogs? So,
1: um, well, a little bit of a long story. Um, Twenty, This is, my, I think, my 23rd year of working dogs. Um, and it all started when I joined the, the UK, the Ministry of Defence here in the UK, um, as a patrol dog handler, a military working dog handler. Um, so, yeah, that was, it's flown by, those 23 years. Um, and I, spelt, I spent... Eleven years, twelve years doing uh, doing patrol dog work uh, for the Ministry of Defence at British Army sites. Uh, And I was based uh, at an electronic warfare site for the British Army. Um, And yeah, and that was the that was the start of it all. Really, that was uh, with military working dogs.
0: Okay. And when you got out of the military, how did you get into? What was your next thing that you did? And how did you get into? The detection dog world
1: so i made a uh, I made what i thought was a good choice at the time but it turned out to be quite a bad choice um so obviously i worked for the ministry of defense um every month i had a, a pay slip um, i had a pension and i was i got i got quite bored of 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 you know the patrol dog work so um I basically got offered a job with a civilian company uh, a detection or company um here still here in Wales um <laughs> and so I I resigned uh, left and went to work for this civilian company um it was a bit of a a bit of a shock to the system having having worked for you know for the Ministry of Defence for the UK for the essentially for the UK government uh uniformed service um and then coming into the private sector and working for a civilian company that's that's how it all started. I only lasted nine months at this particular company um and i if I could have i would have I would have gone back into the ministry of defense but um to get back in would have been quite an effort so um yeah
0: and what kind of work did you do? um In the civilian work, I, I remember when we had talked before. You'd mentioned you—I think it was like person-born type of screening with narcotics dogs. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So, well, what happened? I stayed with that company for about nine months, and uh, that company was—it it was a real eye-opener because it gave me an insight into the private private sector. Um, and there's a lot of comp- probably the same for you in the US. There's a lot of private companies operating dogs of all disciplines. Same here in the UK. Um, and yeah, so I spent, they were training dogs for, actually they were training dogs for, um, Iraq at the time, um, for mm. private companies working out in Iraq. So I got in, obviously got in during the nine months that I was there. I got involved in that. And then I knew I was wanting out from this particular company. So I, I went and did a, uh, I went and did a course then with two instructors, one from one from Surrey police and one from South Wales police um, as a, as a a passive screening for, for drugs. So that was my, that was my, my entry into the detection dog world was, was passive screening basically.
0: And what's it like working because that's not a common part for, I think for a lot of detection dog teams in the United States, we definitely don't do a whole lot of, People screening for narcotics with dogs and the explosive side it's become far more normal after 9-11 but the narcotic side it wasn't what's it like trying to work a dog in a high pedestrian environment with a dog who's looking for an odor that's constantly moving
1: so yeah i mean the the re- one of the reasons that i wanted to do a passive screening. Uh, course with um, with drugs is that there seemed to be I wanted out from this company and this I wanted to go somewhere where I was going to get some work so there seemed to be a lot of people using passive screening drugs dogs um, so that was my my reason for taking for taking that route um and yeah it was Pat, the the two instructors that I had were were excellent they were both from different police services both had different approaches um but uh like all dog trainers they they both had you know good and good and bad things so the course was was a really good course i learned a lot um and yeah le- i learned a lot about pa- passive screening people um it's quite a difficult discipline um it is quite difficult you've got to, i think you've got to have the right dog for it the right breed of dog, the right size of dog, um, and you've got to have a motivated dog as well to do, you know, to do passive screening.
0: What would you say is a really important quality for a type of dog that does people screening? So, I
1: think l- looking at it now, uh, and I I have still got I've got a pointer at the moment um and I trained him firstly as uh, to screen people uh passively for drugs um and later on I trained him to, to do um to do a proactive search he's perfect he's a german short haired pointer he's obviously a nice tall dog stands you know at your waistline um and he's he yeah when you when I'm working him and when I, you know, when I see him working, it's such a pleasure because he does it effortlessly. You see some passive screening dogs that they, they might be cockers or they might be springers. And I know that um, across in the Netherlands and over there, they'll, they'll use Malinois and, and German Shepherds, mm-hmm. which are obviously quite big, big dogs. But um, I think you've got to have the right size dog uh, and and the right. And obviously people use Labradors as well. Um, I'm really lucky with, with my current dog. He's, as I say, it's just effortless. Um, and one of the instructors on the course said to me, when you're handling a passive screening dog, it's like fishing. You've, you've really got to have a, a nice loose line and be really gentle and just sort of go with the dog. And you've got to have a dog that wants to approach people as well. Um, and a dog that doesn't want to climb at people. I've seen some passive dogs that, you know, mm-hmm. they'll hit an odor. They might be quite small. It's in someone's pocket, front or back pocket, and they want to climb the person. Um, I'm not that big a fan of passive dogs that are wanting to climb at people. Uh, the pointer that I've got at the moment, he'll just he'll just knock on a on an odor in someone's pocket and sit directly in front of them. They start to move off he'll follow them um and and doesn't doesn't touch them at all so um yeah i think that's quite uh, the the breed type and the size is very important when when selecting a passive dog
0: yeah i was going to say the sporting or gun dog breeds like you, as you guys refer to them obviously have uh some good advantage there because they're kind of used to following a moving odor and then stalking it so to speak as they get closer yeah. to it Um, but I think what what you also mentioned there, as you were describing about, we're looking for the dogs, which is, you know, I would say like a medium build type dog, not, you know, not too small, obviously bigger is okay. But that Labrador pointer seems like a good sweet spot for, like you said, the height advantage of pockets and things like that without the climbing up of people. But the thing that I caught, that caught my attention was how you brought up, Working that leash almost like you're fishing, and that's a great analogy that I kind of that resonated with me because that was that's so true. You just picking up those little little pulls and how the dog gives resistance, or as it starts picking up odor and being able to feel that just ever so gently on the leash and not restraining too much. I would imagine is is a big skill for the handler to be good at.
1: Yes, yeah, you know you've got to. I've seen a lot of handlers that have maybe come across from, um, you know, from uh, general purpose, police dogs, you know, uh, patrol dogs. They've had Malinois, uh, German Shepherds, and then they're on a passive course and then all of a sudden they've got a Labrador or a Pointer or a Cocker or Springer and they, I think they forget what they've got on the end of the line and you can't be, yeah, you can't be harsh. It is like, as I say, Nigel, one of my instructors, you know, many years ago now, that's what he said. It it is like fishing. You've got to you've got to hold you wanna have a, a fairly long line and you've got to hold it pretty sort of loosely and feel it and and just you can't be yanking the dog um and forcing the dog places. You've just got to you've just got to go with a you know with a dog. But then that all comes down to training then. Um, and mm-hmm. you, obviously you want a dog that approaches people. Uh, groups of people you know people that are moving people that are static so yeah it is a bit like not that I'm a big fisherman but it is a bit like fishing
0: <laughs> the so kind of talk walk us through one of the a memorable deployment that you had with a uh, passive screening dog what was it like something that made me that stood out to you or was a great find talk us through like how that went down and and from your point of view as I don't know, you're walking through the streets of the area that you're in, and then all of a sudden you could feel or read a change and just talk us through what that was like.
1: I'm glad that you've asked that question. Now, I obviously have no idea what you're going to ask me, but I'm glad <laughs> because when I, when I was thinking about passive work the other day, um, I've got a really I – w- I work loads of – so in the UK we have um, – uh, they call it nighttime economy, so lots of different the different police services will have nighttime economy operations. So, especially now at Christmas, people going out for their Christmas parties, there'll be passive drugs dogs out all the time. And uh, I was on a nighttime economy operation in a place called High Wycombe, which is near near London. And I arrived at the police station. Uh, we had a briefing, and there was unusually there was about 25 officers on this operation and so the the way that it normally works is you you head out me with my dog and and 20 25 cops um and they just follow you and you go with the dog and sometimes you'll have um plain clothed officers that'll go ahead so as you're walking down the street. They'll obviously be looking for people that see you and want to drop stuff or turn away, go the other direction. And then you've got to have the numbers, uh, the number of cops to obviously to search people. So I remember really well, and this is going back a few years. And the sergeant said, "We're going to head out of the, the police station, and we're just going to walk towards the towards the bus station, and um, it's sort of across the town." So through the through the through the town centre um, to the other side. So that yeah that's fine. So we came out of the police station. All of these cops, you know, just following. And and the first thing we did was go under an an under a walk under an underpass. Two young lads walking towards us, and all of a sudden the dog flips and goes after them. And I follow the dog, and the dog sits sits down in front of them. So that was two police officers. That stayed there, searched them, ID'd them, did all that stuff, and so we're now down to 23 officers. So we walk on, we mm-hmm. leave those there, we walk on, and we go into the. Just as we're coming into the town centre, another group of lads, dog's doing his business, um sits down in front of a couple of them, uh, indicating on a couple of them, and this was a. I was working a dog called Eric, uh, who was a Sprocker, a Springer Cocker Cross, quite a tall, quite a tall dog, very good at, at passive work. Um, so yeah, so he knocked on uh, a couple more guys in a group. So I think we left three or four officers there. We continued then to where there's uh, like a square with lots of pubs and restaurants and and you know nighttime stuff going on. And we walked past a few of those. There was a few people lining up to go into a bar, and I think the dog indicated on two or three people there. Anyway, by the time we got to the train station, um, by the time we got to the train station, we were now left with uh, about five or six, uh, five or six cops, and we had a walk around the uh, around the bus station. And there was a couple of buses there. And so they said, should we go on to a couple of the buses? So we did. Went on to a couple of the buses. And yet again, the dog is knocking on, uh, on a couple of people on these buses. And um, basically, I, I come off the bus and it's just myself, the dog and the sergeant. And within the space of, it's taken us about 25 minutes to walk from the police station through the town to the bus station. And all the officers are, uh, are being used, basically, to search and ID people. Um, and it's just me and the sergeant left there with a the dog. And he <laughs> turns to me and he says, you can go home now, Stu. Job done. Um, <laughs> and I was getting paid for eight hours uh, wow. and 25, mi- 25 minutes into it. And and that was it. So that's how effective a, you know, a, a passive drugs dog can be. Um And obviously, by the time some of those might have had street cautions or depending on what they were carrying class A drugs or you know or cannabis, they would have some of them might have got arrested but yeah twenty five minutes from one side of the town to the other and and that was it job done. I got paid for eight hours for twenty five minutes work
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't beat that, and then obviously the results speak for itself, which is huge um. Because as a handler, you know, depending on your detection dog discipline, some disciplines you get like that, you get lots of fines, but then you go into the explosive world or maybe even the human remains detection world and you may never get a fine. You know, you get lots of deployments, but you may not find anything. Um, So when we had talked, so as you went from that type of career, what was the next thing you got into from there?
1: Oh so um so I was um, what was happening now I left that company and I was basically I was I was just self-employed and um one of the things although I didn't enjoy my 9 months at that company one of the things that someone actually said to me and I remember it to this day and it's quite a valuable bit of sort of of words of advice is Network, 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 network. Meet and talk to as many people as you can. Send emails. You know, go to seminars. Network, and that's something that I've always done. And so, so I left that company. Obviously, I, I trained as a as a passive scanning drugs dog handler, and and through just through jobs, I was obviously now self employed. Uh, had my mm-hmm. you know my own business. But just through jobs like that that I've just mentioned, what happened was, you know, it's word of mouth. Those cops tell some other cops in another town, or oh, yeah. oh, you, you know, and some of the police forces here in the UK have gone through phases as well of having passive passive drugs dogs. They might have passive drugs dogs for two or three years, and then there might be a change of of uh, you know of uh, sergeant or inspector in charge of the dog unit. He decides we don't need passive drugs dogs so thankfully because of all these changes and we've got 40 plus police services in the uk i was always kept busy with passive drugs work um and then 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 came the olympics so london 2012 olympics and again that was that was probably not a particularly i enjoyed some parts of of the olympics wasn't one of the best um phases in my life to be honest with you um uh, <laughs> i i did a i did a course uh, did an explosive detection dog course um with uh with some instructors from the met police in london so i had two really again two really good instructors um did my explow course um was fortunate enough to to get a rehandled dog from the from the Met Police, uh, an experienced mm. dog, and and also uh, a green dog which I'd run on and was training myself. So I passed out um, passed out and became an expo handler, and, okay. and worked at the worked at the Olympics then. And that was my that was my sort of introduction. I, I had done when I worked for the for my first private company. Uh, that i worked for obviously i did a lot with with explosives there but it was the training dogs the all the odor stuff and the environmental training um so yeah so i that was my next my next leap was into the olympics to do um to do explosive work
0: that is jumping right into the deep end for sure and i re- this is funny because i remember this so at the time of well, the uh olympics in london the company i worked for got bought out by g4s and g4s was i guess one of the main security providers for the olympics if i remember correct yes. but i also remember they they bollocked it up as you would guys would say there was quite the issue that happened <laughs> If I, and i'm it's sketchy in my mind but i do remember like the bleed over was coming it was dealing with us because when they bought us out we had We had dogs, obviously, Um, and there was some rumblings about, well, do we need to provide any backup or dogs to the thing? And that got, you know, squashed pretty quickly. But I remember, like, how serious it was and how big of an operation it was. And if I remember, basically what it was is I think either G4S either underestimated or there was just some struggles with manning or people or something. So then the British government got involved and added people. Or so, I mean, you can fill in the blanks that I have incorrect, but. It,
1: it was probably the, the biggest, the biggest balls up. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, again, I thought I'd worked for a bad company, you know, for nine months. And then I, I went and actually started off working for G4S and okay there it was it was it was not good it was um yeah there were some there were some really you know there were there were actually some good guys there were some retired cops that had been explo handlers um uh they, they were also you know uh, security dog handlers, obviously, I never got involved in that it was just the search the explo search that i got involved with and and there were some good guys but they became what happened, G 4s became desperate. And and because of that desperation, they were employing they, they were people were doing a two week explo course mm. and being deployed mm. in London. And I saw some mm. I saw and met some horrific individuals um who shouldn't have been handling, you know, dogs that uh potentially can you know, can locate explosives. Um, it was, it was not good. My time with G4S only lasted about six months, and actually, I went then, uh, stayed at the Olympics, but I went and worked for a, a private company which was owned and run by former Met Police cops, um, and that was, yeah, that was, that was a lot better. But the G4S yeah. thing was 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 a was a big balls up.
0: Yeah, I, I said. It, I mean, it made the news over even over here, and like I said, because we had been bought, we had been purchased. The company that I had worked for got bought out by G4S, and it was at that almost at that time, maybe a few months before they bought us out. And then all of a sudden we get pulled into this whole thing with what's going on with the Olympics. And since G4S owns us now, we had 50 dogs on site and we had a training center. Did we need to provide for, the, you know, backup for it? And there was, it was really awkward because it, what my division was really doing, we were training guys to go overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan. So even though, yes, we were doing bomb dogs and things like that our operational aspects were going to be very different and the way the dogs were being prepped was very different but then the, the bigger part that was really the issue that that got that stopped the whole collaboration part was because we were a company that was a US company initially By working with G4S, they were an international company, and certain U.S. government contracts don't allow you to work with an international company. So then G4S (laughs) within the United States had to split into two different divisions. One was the domestic U.S. division, which could do the government contracts, and then the other one was the international division. And when that split happened, (laughs) all the conversations of our division helping out for the Olympics died immediately because that stopped it because we could not do anything internationally uh, with a company you know and still hold our contracts with the US government overseas. So, yeah, I just remember the whole thing being pretty crazy and hearing the stories. What was it like working? I mean, I mean, for those who don't know, those environments are pretty crazy and what's expected of a dog handler is is tough at best because there's just people everywhere, chaos in the sense of there's delivery trucks, there's, you know, pedestrian traffic, there's setup, there's all kinds of stuff. What was it like for you?
1: So, yeah, it was, I mean, what, the, as I've mentioned, you know, going from the Ministry of Defense, you know, it's, it's like someone going from the, from the police or the military or, you know, into the private sector. Um, everything is about money. Whereas, mm. you know, when you work for the military or the police, it's not about money. It's about, you know, it's about military security and safety or public safety with the police, you know. So when you go into the private sector, it's it's all about money. And that's what G4S, obviously, you know, these, I mean, G, as you say, G4S is international, turns over billions, I would imagine. Mm. It's all about money. And that's all they're interested in. And because that's all they're interested in is, is making money, they forgot about, I think they forgot about what, what they were supposed to be doing. Um, but mm-hmm. the, as I say, the six months that I was with G4S, I was on vehicle checkpoints in and around the Olympic, the main Olympic site. And it was, yeah, it was just uh, it was just horrific. I mean, there were people turning up with dogs in in vans and cars mm. that two weeks previously uh were building contractors and you know they'd <laughs> done a two week course and next thing they were on a vehicle on a vehicle checkpoint searching vehicles for explosives and you know obviously when I worked for the Ministry of Defence that was something, you know, vehicle checkpoints, you know, VCPs and all that kind of thing. It's 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 part of you. You know what you're doing and and it's, uh, yeah, and it's sort of, and it was, you know, trained into us. But these guys, you know, they, they obviously, there they was some big money being paid to to dog handlers, you know, for the Olympics. And uh, a lot of people were coming from all sorts of backgrounds to do the two or three weeks training, uh, get given a, an explode dog. And next thing they're on a, on a vehicle checkpoint. And it, it was not good. And you know yeah. i i- I remember coming onto to a vehicle checkpoint to take over from there were two two handlers on on a on one of the checkpoints I worked on, and I remember arriving in the in the evening to take over the the night shift and there were no sign of the two handlers Now I could see their vans parked, but I couldn't see them and they were round the back of a building mating their dogs oh my god
0: <laughs> wow so
1: you know uh, that just you know and there were there were people doing things that they shouldn't have and and in, you know and and obviously we weren't getting we weren't getting you know we were on these vehicle checkpoints for for 12 hours 10 to 12 hours we weren't getting you know the dogs needed sweetness uh, they needed you know, they needed training. They needed to find something, and dogs weren't getting training. Um, yeah. Mm. So it was, it was, it was not good. Um, it was not good, Cameron.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, in those who are watching and listening, the in and those who have been in the contracting world learn that lesson really quickly, which is the companies, because they're for profit, focus on profit and safety is yeah they care about safety but they care about the bottom line and what money they're making so like you said when you compare it to and, and both sides aren't perfect the law enforcement military side's not perfect and the contracting side obviously clearly isn't perfect either but when it comes to the priorities the priorities for the like you said the public safety law enforcement military is going to be geared towards the safety you know Whereas the 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 commercial side is definitely the bottom line, where they can save money and be profitable is a probably one of the biggest concerns. I can't say that I've met a company that says, you know what, we care so much about safety, we don't care if we do, we don't make money on this, we don't care. <laughs> no. I haven't come across a company that, that does that. I no. do 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 I meet individuals who do care about the safety? Yeah, they care, but depends on where they're at in the chain of command. Um, the ones who are the decision makers making decisions usually on what saves them money. So those who like you're talking about, when you get into that contracting world as a dog handler, you live and die by the contract. And if the contract is viewed as not profitable or if the contract is viewed as problematic for something it's gone and then that employment that you had is also gone if you're a handler of that division or unless you get lucky and get transferred to something else but as we both know that contracting <coughs> world is a, is a brutal tough world to go work it, in
1: yeah it is it's um yeah it, it is it's not good and um and actually you know i i look back now i, I most of my work now well actually all of my work now um, although I've got my own company, it's you know it's just me. All of my work now is for for local government, you know, and uh, um, government agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, I only work now for for police, for um, for customs, for uh, for the National Health Service, for our hospitals, um, and for Trading Standards. So I've I've tried to, yeah, I've I've got out of. I don't really. I keep myself to myself i don't really want to mix with other companies um and yeah i i I, yeah so yeah and i and i again you know when it boils obviously it's it's me everything that i do i want i want my i want my dogs to be you know to be up to standards operationally fit for purpose um and it's not all about money. I need to to preserve my my mm-hmm. reputation. So, yeah, I'm, I like to think I'm a bit different to to G4S and uh, some of those other ones Absolutely. I worked for.
0: Absolutely, because it's a lot of the same reasons <laughs> why I enjoy being self employed is because I can make sure the standards are where I want them. For the exact reason you said, is at the end of the day, it's my name on it, yeah, and yeah. I don't want to compromise. And I won't compromise just for the sake of money. And you know, I'm sure just like you, I've turned down things because of it's a compromise of safety. No matter what they're paying me, I'm not going to do it that way because I want to make sure we're doing it the right way, not just for the, the window dressing aspect, which happens a lot of times in the detection dog world, depending on what the detection work is. Usually when it comes to the bomb dog world, there's a lot of window dressing going on with with not so good operational, you know, uh, requirements (laughs) or goals and objectives to really do it right. So for sure, it's a uh, it's a difficult thing. Now, there's something that I was I've always been wanting to ask you and, and to learn more about this. And it's part of your journey. So I know at some point you got into this whiskey barrel, I think if I remember right, it's a like a defect that you were looking for with a dog within these barrels so that they wouldn't get used. Tell us a little bit about like how did that come about? What did you train for? What can you tell us about that journey in your career?
1: Okay. So, yeah, so that's um so I've obviously the more I've got involved with with detection dogs, the more and you know over the years the the more you the more I've looked at odours the more I've looked at um uh, contamination and you know and and uh, and trying to do things properly uh and also I uh, you know the, the the past few years I mean I've read so many books as well I am quite keen to to absorb knowledge um so the whiskey yeah, the whiskey dogs came about because um I'd been contacted I've been contacted by actually, uh, so the company is William Grant & Sons, who are, I think, they're the third largest whiskey producer in the world. And um, Grant, they, so they own Glen Fiddich whiskey. Um, They own uh, Hendrick's Gin. Uh, They own, obviously, uh, they, they produce Grant's whiskey. And uh, they produce a few other whiskies, and shamefully, I can't remember which ones they 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 are at the moment. But so mm-hmm. yeah, so they're a big, a big company, and they've got a number of distilleries in Scotland. And um, so some things I'm actually not allowed to talk about because because sure. uh, because of um, uh, the uh, confidentiality agreement um they have but they're happy to obviously for me to you know to talk about the whiskey dogs um so they i was contacted by uh i think this is where it, it got really interesting for me because as i say i uh, i like to learn about odor and contamination and uh you know using scent consoles and scent wheels and this kind of thing mm-hmm. um and making sure that the you know that the dogs are A train to find what you're, you know, what you're obviously looking for. Um, so they contacted me, and what actually the the lady that contacted me is a lady called Leslie Gracie, and she is the lady that actually created Hendrix Gin. And oh, wow! Yeah, and she has her office in in uh, the Grants Distillery in Girvan in Scotland on the west coast. And she lives or she works in the Gin Palace. And it's this specially created building um on the on the distillery site. And it's a fantastic building. It's not open to the public. But if it was, there would be queues of people to go in there every day. It's just a phenomenal building. And so Leslie works in the uh in in this building and she creates uh Hendrix Gin, and she's created all the spin-offs from all the different other um, gins that they produce. So she contacted me and said, "Listen, we've been thinking about uh, whether a dog can or cannot help us with uh, a possible problem, and uh, we would like to know whether a, a dog, whether you think it possible for a dog to to be able to detect." Uh, a couple of odors that um, that we don't want in in or near our you know whiskey producing equipment and and casks. So she so I said, well, anything is possible, you know. If if it's got an odor, then there's a good mm-hmm. possibility that a dog can find it. And she said, okay. She said, what I haven't told you is is that we're the odors that we're looking for. Are like one and two parts per trillion in size. So I said, wow. "Okay." So I said, "That's pretty small, I think." <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And she said, "Yes, it's 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 pretty small, and in some cases, a mass spectrometer, you know, can is unable to to sort of confirm it or, or or detect, the, you know, these quantities." um
0: wow.
1: so that's so it was just a phone call she'd she'd googled me and um she contacted uh a couple of of companies and um and luckily i i said that um well that they offered they offered it to me from uh, i mean i had so many meetings with them about this um and i told them about what potentially i could do for them and that that's how it all started was from, from this phone call and then they were actually at first they didn't want to reveal to me what the odors were um and basically it's a quality control thing and this is we're talking about mm-hmm. odors that uh we're talking about odors that can't they can't hurt people um but they can affect the whiskey making process and obviously they want their mm-hmm. products to not be affected um by these odors so um yeah so that's how it all started basically
0: so when you so you obviously you get the chemicals you need to train on you have them obviously distilled down to the levels that you're expected to find them um so how did you go about one, what type of dog did you pick for this kind of work? And then two, kind of describe as best you can or what you're allowed to say, operationally, what's it like to work and try to find something at those levels? And how do you, you know, again, obviously the clarity of the dog, understanding what the task is, um, but something with such a low off-gassing amount of odor, it's going to take some good skill by the handler to read this. So let's just talk about once the dogs were trained, what was it like, or what did you guys have to do to work these dogs operationally?
1: So, so the first thing um, they they wanted uh, they wanted just one dog for 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 this project, and they wanted this dog to be paired with uh, someone that worked at the distillery, and it could be part of their uh, a sort of a second role in their job so um so i had to select i had to i had to select the dog that was obviously i was gonna i was gonna fully train it myself and then re-team it with a new handler and uh i knew who that who the new handler was going to be uh she actually had no she she had owned dogs before but no no previous dog handling skills um she was actually uh uh she's she's obviously still there now uh, a former fire service manager uh, firefighter um mm. uh, who'd come into the the whiskey business and um yeah so it also had to be a high it had to be a pretty high drive dog because the actual task at hand and this was all a huge learning curve for me so I can't remember the figures yeah. uh, the figures to hand but at the distillery um there is, I think, there's something like 20,000, 30,000 whiskey casks. Mm. So now, very similar to, to, to Explo, there's a possibility that that dog would be working for a number of hours per day and not finding anything. So dog selection was, you know, was quite quite critical, really. It had to be a, a high-drive dog, one that would, you know, would keep going. Um and so I selected a dog called Rocco, who was a, a working cocker spaniel, and they're they obviously working cockers are, are the, the best dogs you can get. Um, I totally. Agree, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I selected Rocco, and yeah, I mean what, what I did, uh, well, you know, going the same as you would for any dog. Uh, Rocco was was particularly driven for, for Kong, so. started started him off on kong and you know kong pieces and Mm -hmm. i basically i prepared i prepared him prior to going on to the odors i prepared him on absolutely minute pieces you know of kong um Mm -hmm. and um so that was the uh, that was the, the 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 sort of the initial stages with him he had a good indication as well a nice uh a nice stand and stare and sort of freeze indication so yeah mm-hmm. so rocco was rocco was the was the the dog that so, was selected and uh, i was sent then so i i hadn't actually made any site visits to uh to the distillery so this was all going on google maps and having a look and mm. having meetings and and you know and them telling me what they wanted excuse me um so then they sent me they they sent me the odors uh they sent me the raw odors um and that's what i so even though we were looking to train the dogs at one or two parts per trillion what i did mm-hmm. was i started the dogs off on uh on five grams I started and okay. I have missed a little bit here actually. So they just wanted the one dog um which was which was um which eventually was Rocco. But I thought to myself I'm not just going to train one dog for this. I'm I've got a spare dog here. I'm going to train two. So they were both trained exactly the the other was a working cocker as well. Um uh Bram who I've still got now. Uh, he's actually okay. been re- tra- retrained as a tobacco dog um mm-hmm. so i yeah i trained them both exactly the same but my reason for training i know the client only wanted one dog but i thought what i want to do here is in it there's a there's a possibility this dog might might not make it let's train a second train them side by side and also i can see you can work them off against each other, see what one's doing, see if the other's doing it, and see how they pr- progress through the training. Um, they actually both they, they were they were both a- absolutely fine, um, and, uh, and and both uh, both doing the job really competently. Um, so then I got sent the odors, and what I did was because in, rather there was no need for me to start off on. On big amounts I started Mm -hmm. off on I think five grams and basically worked it down from five grams and um and I was one or two parts per trillion I mean I did loads of research and I actually spoke to I spoke to some fire fire investigation dog handlers that we've got here in the UK because with their arson dogs they're looking Mm -hmm. for Sometimes parts per trillion quantities, so I had a lot of um a lot of information and advice uh from John and Mike up in uh Humberside fire and rescue and they they were both fire investigation dog handlers uh had a lot of advice off them and yeah, and so what i the my thinking was you know uh i mean I even bought things like micro scales to try and to whittle this five grams down to so we're talking now I trained these dogs on one granule um, to locate one granule which you which I had to use a telescope I had to use a uh, not a telescope a microscope I had to use a microscope to actually pull out one granule and so this is where all my sort of Sort of years of reading and and research and talking to people about contamination and using just stainless steel and just glass and keeping you know keeping contamination to a, and cross contamination to a to a minimum. That's where all this sort of came into play really. So yeah, so I was using a microscope to pull out one one granule from five grams, which you could barely see, and the dogs were knocking it. The dogs were getting it. Wow. Um and then then what I did I used soaks um so I do you call them soaks as well Yep so absolutely. I I was you yeah so cigarette um you know like cigarette filters and mm-hmm. uh and and gorse and and that kind of thing so I was using that and uh the dog again the dogs were so I was I was putting uh soaks in not not actually not actually touching the odors but putting them in the same jars and and sealing them and so i was actually soaking stuff then for like eight hours four hours three hours two hours one and eventually i was soaking soaks for just 10 minutes putting them out and getting the dogs to to the the thing is, when you soak, when I I found when I was soaking something for just ten minutes, when I put it out, I had to get the dogs working straight away because obviously the odor would, you know, would diminish mm-hmm. and leave that soak. And so, I I started using as well a metal a metal a metal disc a metal gauze disc, um, which I bought from mm-hmm. Amazon. <clears throat> and again, you know, metal obviously. It holds odor, but it doesn't hold it as well as other as, as other things that uh, can absorb odor. So we were starting to use metal metal gorse then, and with our one granule on the gorse, just a soak time of of just like you know just minutes basically. Um, and then obviously because we're using soaks, we were having to use the confirmation was a real low soak time with with the odor on the metal gorse, putting that out, seeing if the dog will knock it, and then putting an, un, an unsoaked metal gauze out to see if it's the gorse or not that the dogs are finding, and it was the odor every mm-hmm. time.
0: Wow. So first question <laughs> I have on that one, is, how long did it take to train the dog to be ready to be operational? About eight months yeah it was about I was eight, eight say. months. <laughs> yeah And, and that, that's a lot of i mean you're doing you're putting in a lot of work even in that 8 months to get there at that time frame
1: yeah it was a lot of work and there was a lot of lot of stress and um uh, uh and obviously i'm not a scientist you know i'm just a i'm just a dog trainer um so the you know there was what i didn't want to do i i didn't want uh you know, my fear was 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 obviously was mucking mucking the whole thing up um yeah. you know so yeah and then it's okay you know i i had this thinking then it's okay i've been doing all of this but i've actually got to pass all this on now to a, and train a new handler f- who's never who's never done the the expo and the drugs and been working dogs I've got uh, all of all of that. I've got to pass on. And the good thing is, is actually, is that um, Leanne, uh, who was the the, the first handler and uh, with Rocco, she um, her background. You know, she was a, a firefighter. Really, you know, obviously intelligent lady. Um, went through the ranks in the fire service and then came over and is a, is a sort of a distillery manager now in charge of. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of science and chemistry involved in making whiskey and gin and all this kind of thing. So thankfully, you know, these people know, you know, they, they were able to understand all of the concerns, you know, and the worries that I had um, about contamination and, and the the training required to, you know, to, to get the dogs to where they were.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, that's, and you you hit you covered it when I was gonna ask next but, but you covered it, which was the proofing aspect you know you had to put in obviously an enormous amount of time to make sure the dog was hitting the target, not something else, depending on and it, like you said, as you broke it down into those really small parts per trillion and having to use soaks and various times you still have to do a lot of work to make sure the dog is hitting the thing that you believe it's hitting on by proofing through all those other things, all the different, uh, soak materials or the environmental aspects that the dogs will be facing operationally to make sure that they're as honest as they can be Is this is the odor we're looking for. Not, I picked up also on this thing too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was, you know, it, it was a pretty stressful, uh, pretty stressful time. um, uh, yeah, but thankfully that you know the the dog. I'm, I'm one thing that I had to do, which I'm not. I've not always been a big person for it. I, I had to write and record everything. Oh yeah. Everything, yeah. as as you know, you know, and I've learned, you know, one of the one of the one of the biggest sort of um, uh, dog instructors trainers out there to tell you about planning and recording stuff is Simon Prince. Um, I was
0: going to say, I'm <laughs> the guy. <laughs> yes.
1: um, so, you know, I, yeah, I had to really do what he teaches people. I had to record everything. I photographed everything, recorded everything. Everything had to be timed. It was, and it was taking me, it's strange because it takes you out of, you know, I'm just a dog trainer and it takes you out of that yes. world because I'm sort of crossing over into a science type role now and that's not what i am um
0: so (laughs) i totally get it i totally because i'm like you i am i naturally i am not a fan of all that really strict diligent record keeping it's it it's not fun to me so therefore that's something the other side of things i want to go do but (laughs) i've learned to have to get better at it and i like you there are certain phases. Now when I teach people, I also teach them to make sure that they do that because the sooner you embrace it, depending on the type of detection, but I think it's good. Just note taking in general is great for uh, any detection because it keeps track of where you're at, what you've been, what problems you see. And we, we all know our memories aren't all that great. And some people may have great memories, but a majority of us will forget things. Even 10 minutes after a search, uh, I do this to students now all the time is they wear GoPros or I have GoPros in the area or we're recording and then I make them hand write what they saw their dogs do and, and hand write the session. Then an hour later or whatever it is, we sit down and watch and we, we read their notes first and then we watch the video and yeah. then we see how much did they properly remember what happened versus what was recorded. and. Yeah. Some are really good at it, and some. This is just like me. This is a lot of work to to, to keep up with. It's not natural. I just want to work the
1: yeah. dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it's um yeah. It doesn't. It's not. I, you know, I was wasn't the best in school. You know, re- reading and writing. You know, I did it, but I didn't. You know, dog training. It's Same. get a lead, get a lead, get a dog, get an odor, get a Kong or a tennis ball, train the dog, but yeah i mean i when i i mean i obviously i i i audit there's a couple of projects that i work on that i audit and i i work with a few customs teams overseas and they actually dread it because i turn up now with my ipad pro and my pen and they're like is this a test and i'm like i've got to write it down because otherwise i just forget but it's so you know i end up with pages and pages of notes but it's so helpful because i just i just can't remember it and um yeah recording and and timing and video and a photograph in and you know as you say the video i was up in with the the two handlers up in the whiskey distillery a few months back and we set gopros up and it's good f- for them to see as well you know this is what the this is what the dog did this is what you did you were you were pulling the line and and um yeah it's so it's it's any way to record it is 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 good
0: and speaking of that project how many dogs how many whiskey dogs are out there now
1: <clears throat> so uh re- and really it was it's quite a sad story actually so rocco um rocco was exceptionally successful um at doing his job um uh, and uh, I was actually in uh, I was in Indonesia last year and I had a phone call from from one of the uh, one of the staff there to say that uh, Rocco had been taken ill um, and he'd got into emergency surgery and unfortunately had died, um, which was uh, so he uh, it was a twisted gut or, or something he'd had. So they were obviously mm. all absolutely well as as was I. This was a dog that I had spent months and months training and, and obviously he'd he'd had months of being successful um with his with his handler Leanne. And so um because of the, the all the success that he'd had working uh with um, with Grant's whiskey, they they got back in touch. Um after a period and, and asked me to train two dogs. So there are now two dogs, two more liver working caucus. Um, mm-hmm. One of, one of, one of them is Kevin, uh, who's a working cocker from a, a one of my own litters. Uh, and he's, oh, nice. he's, and he's the son of Rocco. So, um, so he's it's it's a really nice story actually because um obviously Rocco you know was a bit of a trailblazer first whiskey dog in the world um mm-hmm. but unfortunately you know died far too young from a from his medical condition but uh, not that I knew it was going to happen uh, he'd been a sire to a to a bitch that I have here um and we had a fantastic litter of cockers and Kevin now is following in his father's footsteps, and is is being handled by Leanne, who had his dad. And Toby, another liver cocker, is with um, with Janice. And so Kevin now is at uh, permanently based with Leanne at the Glenfiddich Whiskey distillery in Dufftown in Scotland. And uh, Toby and Janice are at the Girvan distillery. So there are. Two whiskey dogs in the world, uh, two liver cockers, and uh, both, yeah, both doing a, a really good job. And I, I go up there two or three times a year to uh, to carry out refresher training and and make sure that the you know the dogs and the handlers are doing what they should be doing. So really, you know, nice good That's success
0: story. Awesome. Yeah, I I love it. It's it is what I love is one. It's such a rare type of thing. But two, how challenging that is. Challenging as a detection dog handler and trainer to get through all those things that like you talked about to get a reliable team to find something so unique and such a unique environment all by itself. So... Uh again, I had huge ad- admiration when I saw that. I was like, man, that is some of the coolest <laughs> stuff I, you know, I can't wait to talk about that. So thank you for I mean, that's just uh those watching and listening. I mean, the appreciation to do a type of detection dog like that is phenomenal. So again, hats off to you for doing that, which brings me to the another one that I love that you're doing. I wish I don't know why we don't have this over here, but the tobacco detection dogs. Um, talk about how you got into that a little bit, but then what's the main purpose for t- tobacco detection dogs? Because again, it's not common in the United States, so the listeners and viewers will be really interested to see why you guys have it and how you use it. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Okay, so that the t- yeah tobacco has um is is just that's taken over my life to be honest with you. Um, so I I was asked I was actually working at the Olympics and uh i got contacted by uh by a guy who said um uh so we have obviously over here we have the national health service who who are you know it's a free free health service for everybody in the uk all the hospitals and doctors um uh the nhs run all that so uh, a guy from the nhs contacted me and said um would it be possible for you to train a, a dog that can find Small quantities of of cigarettes and tobacco that uh, being smuggled into some of our mental health facilities. So I said, um, yeah, that's something I can do. And I was going through a bit of a bad phase, as I've said at the Olympics. So I, I I went out and sourced a dog, um, and um, yeah, had a few meetings with this guy and and trained basically. Uh, where I, li- I live in Pembroke,shire in in wales so it's it's in the coast big tourist area so we've got a lot of a lot of hotels and a lot of uh, like bunk houses you know these normally they're farms on the coast that have been turned into 50 or 100 bed bunk houses for visitors to stay in um so we've got a lot of those so i thought right mental health hospital um i had some details I thought, right, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I'll get some odours, get some tobacco and cigarettes and use some of these, trying to replicate as as much as I could, you know, the, the environment that the dog was going to be working in. So I had a little um, a Springer Cocker Cross um, uh, called Phoebe. Still got her now. She's she's retired. She's an old lady now. Um, so, yeah, trained her. And basically started working. Well, actually, it's probably one of the fam- most famous mental health facilities in the UK. It's called Broadmoor Hospital, and um, okay. it's it's held some of our. Um, it's held uh, the Yorkshire Ripper and uh, a few people that have have done a lot of bad things in the UK have have, have been held at uh, this particular mental health facility, and and that's where I started working, Phoebe. Um yeah and it was a bit of a learning curve because i'd never it's it's one of my it's one of my sort of bug bears really and it's something that i did which i i now i i, I you know what dog trainers are like we're very critical of, of each <laughs> other um, of course it's it's it's, it's, something that, it's something that i'm quite critical of now and it's you know Someone phones me and says, "Can you train a tobacco dog?" Yeah, no problem. I've trained a, I've trained a drugs dog. I've trained a, uh, an explosive dog. I'll train a tobacco dog. And actually, I've mm-hmm. I've sort of learnt that actually all of these, you know, explosives, drugs, tobacco, cadaver, they're all individual disciplines. They all have their own ways of, you know, they're not all the same. Yeah, you can train a drugs dog, but can you train an explosive dog you know or should you be training an explosive dog you've trained a cadaver Mm -hmm. dog but should you be training you know a drugs dog these are all this is what i've i've learned you know over the years and yeah i i trained i trained phoebe and started working her in this um, in this hospital and then i i started going on to a few training um started working in a few other hospitals as well and naively um we, we We weren't finding stuff at first, and um it was because of the way that I'd trained her and um you know I soon learnt that the the tobacco that was being hidden in these mental health hospitals was like you know a piece of tobacco the size of your small fingernail in the hem of mm. a curtain. Well, I hadn't trained for that. I just put a cigarette in a drawer or a cigarette under a bed or under a mattress. And it's one of those sort of, you know, do you know what I'm saying? It's one of those naive naiveties that dog people, dog trainers have. Oh, I've done that. I can do anything. Well, actually, to train a dog or to work a dog in a mental health facility, you've got to have a particular set of skills and know Mm. where things are going to be hidden and and to know and once you know where those things are going to be hidden it's then you can train a dog successfully to work in that environment so it was a bit of a a steep learning curve but what happened was i then got contacted by uh a a retired um police guy actually who um he contacted me and he said um uh, do you fancy doing some other tobacco work? Because I hear you've, you know, you've got, you've got this dog working in the hospitals. Um, so uh, here in the UK, we have um, uh, uh, there are law enforce, they enforce laws. They're local government officers. They're called Trading Standards, and we okay. have, I think, we have over three hundred uh, local authority governments in the United Kingdom, and. Most of them have these uh, these uh, these um, law enforcement officers called trading standards. So they they investigate. Oh, you know the, their remit is is so huge actually. So if you have a problem with uh, a car that someone's clocked the the mileage on it, it they're the department that investigate it. If you've um, mm-hmm. if you bought a washing machine or a tumble dryer that's that's out of you know that's that's broken down and the the manufacturer or the sellers you know not wanting to deal with you then they you go to trading standards and they also they part of their remit is tobacco um and counterfeit items so steve the guy who contacted me said do you fancy doing a uh a job with a trading standards team so i said yeah you know what is it and he said oh it's um they're looking at like dodgy shops that sell under the counter cigarettes, so as p- a lot of people might know you know here in the u k we're taxed heavily very yep. heavily um so a packet of cigarettes here in the u k now is about thirteen fourteen fifteen pounds for for twenty cigarettes wow. um and I think the the vast majority of that is tax that goes back to to revenue and customs, and the government. So this is again, this is all really new to me. We're going back to we're going back a few years, um, and uh, I'd never heard of of you know of of the the requirement or the need for for dogs to search shops and houses for 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 tobacco. So I agreed to it and again going back to that you know n- naivety I've I've trained a dog that searching in a hospital and yeah I've got a tobacco dog I'll search a shop well it was <laughs> again it was a bit of a a bit of a learning a bit of a learning curve um and um so typically these shops where you know you customers would come in didn't want to spend 14 pounds on a packet of cigarettes they wanted to spend three or four pounds so it would normally be under the counter um and this is one of the areas that that trading standards deal with um yeah so i uh so i did a couple of jobs and yeah and it was it was pretty at first it was sort of pretty easy taking dogs into retail shops little corner shops um and the dog would, you know, would search the drawers and behind the counter and it would be, you know, uh, sort of hidden in different places. And the, the dog mm-hmm. was finding stuff and it was, um, it was, it was good. Um. So that was, again, this was still my first dog, Phoebe. But what happened was it, I, it, it started to develop then and the people that ran these shops were all uh, all part of organized crime groups um this was you know serious and organized crime. These shops were selling two three thousand pounds worth of cigarettes mm-hmm. a day um so these you know these people mean mean business and um yeah, and basically uh it it's it went from from being hidden under the counter to being hidden in places where the dog was struggling to find it
0: um mm-hmm. yeah um as i was gonna say that's the really <laughs> unique part about that is you're facing it's it's like same thing as a drug dog handler you're facing somebody who is purposely trying to fool you or your dog or at least fool you from trusting your dog that there's something in this flat wall or something you know wrapped in food or whatever. the it's up to the person's imagination, of course, how they want to conceal it. but it takes your skill as a dog handler to read and interpret sometimes the oddest or smallest changes of behavior because how the thing they're looking for is concealed makes it so different than what we can replicate in training. And the fact that you face that all the time now, of course, Builds up your skills as a handler and the skills of the dog to tell you it's there. One of the things I was thinking of, I'm curious if to see if you've ever found it this way, but if in my head I'm going, okay, if I'm a shop owner and I want to hide my illegal tobacco, I would put it directly in a wall behind the area that I have my legal tobacco. So that way, if your dog's searching, of course, your dog's going to alert to this area. this is where my tobacco is. How do you combat something like that, or have you come across something like that
1: yeah so so this this as I've said this is this area of work has has basically taken over my life Cameron it has for, oh, yeah. for over for over ten years now I mean i at one point, I was working with. Uh, over 100 of those local government um uh you know there's 300 in the UK 300 plus i was working with over 100 of those teams and it's i would say that my 10 plus years of 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 doing this role now this is where i've actually learned about being a detection dog trainer and handler um and not wanted to you know to to you know to upset anyone or or sort of or you know but my everything that i did as an ex-flow handler and a drugs handler compare it doesn't compare to what i'm Mm -hmm. doing now um and i i i obviously had this 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 first dog phoebe and um and she was doing okay and then I I sourced a couple of other dogs, uh, and they they're both actually they've both put in nine years they've both retired now. I I I got a, a Springer in called Scamp, and another working cocker called mm-hmm. Yo-Yo. and uh, those dogs actually in the, so they've both between them they've got eighteen years service working for Customs, wow. Trading Standards, and Police in the UK. Those two dogs have found over sixty million pounds worth of tobacco. Wow. And it's been um as as you you know just just said it has been it is where I have learned my my skills as as a trainer. I've had to train those 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 second the the second and third dogs after after Phoebe. I had to train them differently because actually now mm-hmm. I wasn't want I wasn't they weren't they weren't finding stuff. That was hidden in a drawer you know in a cupboard anymore um I was having to to the training that I was having to give them was training to to locate stuff to identify false floors, false walls and even false ceilings and um, and yeah it, it's just been uh, it's just been, for me you know it's been um, that's been a, a mammoth task really um but they you know the dogs have been really successful but i had to change you know you, you see social media social media all the time you see you see these dogs giving uh, again you know i i don't want to criticize people or or put people down <clears throat> excuse me but um 75% or more of the fines that my dogs have they don't give uh, a final response in you know an in, yeah. in, in indication, it's because mm-hmm. of a change of behavior, and I I've had to learn that the dog's ears are doing that for a reason. His tail is doing that for a reason. He's you know he's moving his head for a reason. Um, I've had to you know and you I've really had to get to know. And this is this is quite sort of sad really because um, only yesterday. Uh, my last explo dog um, was put to sleep yesterday, and mm. I worked. I worked here at uh, you know, all over the country. But you know, she the only finds that she ever had were were training finds. She never had a a live explo mm. find. I never saw the side to her that I've seen for of for my tobacco dogs. The behaviors, you know, and the the characteristic characteristics you know the things that they've done when when i've been operational with them has just been you know i have people with me all the time following me um and and i say hang on a minute we need to like i, I want everybody out of this room i just want to work the dog again here and they're like why and i'm like well the dog did this or the the dog did that we didn't see that and i'm like i don't mm-hmm. expect you to see that well doesn't your dog just sit or stand and stare or bark when it finds something? And I'm like, no, it's, you know, it's, um, I had, I did a job uh, a few years ago now and I, I had to, um, I was searching a, a block of, uh, well, it was, it was some flats apartments and I had two cops following me who were from like a, a regional organized crime unit. So they were, you know, detectives, investigators, um Worked on a lot of drugs, uh you know, big drugs cases, and they were following me as I was working a dog through this apartment, and the dog actually gave a, a full-on indication on a on a door frame going into a living room, and uh I turned around and I said, "Yeah, it's it's here," and they said, "What's here?" and I said, "There's, there's tobacco." I said, and "Actually, I said from my experience, it's going to be above the door, two hydraulic rams." are going to bring the door frame down and the tobacco is going to be in there. And these were two cops with a lot of experience, you know, investigating big drug crimes and gangs and that kind of thing. And they were like, they were laughing. And they were like, you're, you're serious? And I'm like, yeah, of course I am. And they're like, no, <laughs> no. Why, why would anyone? Is that what the dog has found? So we started smashing up this door. And and yeah, there was the dog was 100% correct. There was two hydraulic rams in there and at the flick of a, a remote, which we didn't have, the rams would bring the, the, the top of the door frame down, and that's where all the, the cigarettes and tobacco were. But I've had to I've had to train train my dogs differently. Um and you know, when I think back to I think back I remember searching a football stadium once uh with it for 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 explosives um with a couple of uh they were retired cops and we were searching the um you know the boxes where companies have you know have their own boxes and the guys would i remember following one guy and he was a he was like twenty eight years in the police as a as a as a bomb dog handler and was doing it now in the private sector and I was following him being his sort of spotter and I remember going along this corridor and he'd open the door. The dog, and in in this room, obviously, the front of it would be glass looking onto the football pitch. Um, There'd be a small kitchen unit in there, a table and a sofa. And I remember him opening the door and the dog going in around the sofa, around the table and back out. And he closed the door and we go on to the next one. And I remember saying to him, you know, if I did that with my tobacco dogs, I'd miss everything. And he said, "Well, what do you mean?" And I said, "If they hid explosives like they hide tobacco, mm-hmm. my, I wouldn't have got that." He didn't like what I was what I was saying, but uh. i uh, you know I said to him, "If I went in there with my tobacco dog, I'd have to be in there for three four minutes." Your dog was literally in there, you know, under a minute, and you're expecting him to to find you know I don't know. Five, 10, 15 grams of Semtex or TNT or whatever. And he he said, I remember him saying, you know, we haven't got time to spend three or four minutes in each of these rooms. But he didn't like the fact that I said, you know, if I went in there to find an illegal tobacco concealment, I would have to, the dog, and that my dogs would know I would open the door, they would actually systematically search that kitchen unit, the floorboards, the door frames. I've had to train my dogs in a totally different way that I did my, my drugs and my explosive dogs.
0: For sure. I mean, it's... It, I, I loved the fact that you brought up to me nowadays my biggest teaching point, the thing I want to share the most with everybody, and that is the importance of being able to read your dog and not necessarily need that perfect stoic indication that everybody thinks they have to have. Because as you and I both know, the real world prevents or inhibits sometimes that perfect indication. Though I'm not saying don't train it, I'm just saying is you can't expect to rely solely on that perfect indication. And when they spend so much time and and they think the dog must do this, they're missing the important things, which is those little ear movements like you brought up, the how the body moves, the the changes in pace, the rapid changes in breathing, all of those things, whatever it is to your dog that tells you, hey, there's something here. And whatever it is it's reacting to isn't a distractor, isn't a proofing item, it is the target odor. And it's so critical to get good at reading your dog. But if all your training is about this perfect sit, searching a wall, a wheel or boxes or whatever it is, you're, you're going to not, you're going to really miss what it's like when you deploy your dog and expect to find something in a real world environment that has all kinds of conditions that you don't have in a brick wall or on a wheel. So I, and, and everybody knows I'm for fundamentals. I'm for these things all have a reason to exist but i think thanks to social media and what gets shared so often is this false or I, I call it the fantasy world of this perfect indication and this is how it's going to be and this is what i expect to have this is better this is this is what i have to have in order to call uh uh-uh. uh if you are a true what i would call artist of working your dog you're going to know all the small little things about your dog that tells you and how your dogs communicating, hey, I'm I'm finding or I'm I'm smelling the thing. I just got to work it out where it's at. And so often when you're going against somebody in this case, people who are trying to evade detection, they're going to come up with all kinds of crazy ways to get it past whatever devices the government has to find it. So in this case, it's a dog. So these, like you said, they're going to put hydraulic systems in a the wall. They're going to make false compartments. They're going to do all these things that just aren't easy to replicate in training. But if I get really good at reading my dog and reinforcing those behaviors, then those behaviors are more likely to increase and get stronger, then become easier to read. So I love that you brought that up because I think you and I both share that passion. That it gets missed too often. People don't don't do enough to talk about the importance of reading your dog versus the uh, perfect fantasy world alert.
1: Yeah, I mean i i've got i've got um, i've got sent i've got scent wheel here. I've got Simon Prince scent wheel here. I probably do a day a month on the scent wheel. I put the dogs on the scent wheel. I've got pots here, consoles. I use them probably, you know, a day a month. I've got I've got some walls here as well, which I use. But mm-hmm. I, I can't remember what you just called it. I call it the social media indication. I do get bored <laughs> of of opening yep. up Instagram and Facebook, um, you know, and seeing the same thing every day. Uh, every day every day you know walls
0: and a wall every day yeah i I, get it i get it
1: yeah and actually i don't think i don't think that many repetitions with the same dog you know is is
0: is actually is very healthy or wise i agree i agree um it creates a dog who's too rigid sometimes. They think this is the only way it should be presented to them. And, and to prove your point, when I was in Europe this past year, there was a lot of teams who focused heavily on doing a brick wall type search. It's just what they they said it was convenient. They did a lot of it. All I did was put the odor. There's a post that was about um, maybe a meter off the wall. So I have the wall here. And then the I put the odor a meter away, but it was behind the wall. So the dog's facing search on the wall, but just behind their head is where I put odor on the on the po- on the post. The dogs struggled so hard to tell the handler there was odor there because it wasn't just because the bricks were present, it made the dog less flexible to try something different. Yeah. And I told them, I said, Well, in your world, how often do you have bricks? You know, in your environment. And depending on the the teams, some said, yeah, it's more frequent, sometimes like hardly ever. And I said, okay, I'm not saying that this is a problem. What I'm saying is too much of this is the problem. And that is relative to certain dogs, the higher motivated dogs, when they really find something they get a lot of reinforcement for, become so heavily focused if that thing is in that room or in that space, they'll ignore the things that are around it because well, this thing always pays me. And even though I have something just a meter away, they can't, they can't be flexible enough to try something different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I, I, I really don't think it's, it's healthy to be, you know, as I say, I, I use them a a day a month, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I use them. It it is good for, for focusing a dog and, you know, and for, for re reconfirming odors and that kind of thing it's you know but when i when I'm going into a building and there is an odor twelve thirteen fourteen foot high, the dog is not going to the training on that wall is of going to be of no use whatsoever mm-hmm. you know um uh, you know and uh, and as you've said as well, I can't replicate. Um, I can't replicate the hides that I'm finding you know these these criminal gangs that are installing these concealments are spending five six seven thousand pounds to have people put electrics and t- timber and concrete and all sorts into them you know to to build them so I can't replicate them yeah. i have to i have to do what do what i can you know in the in the areas that i that, that I have for training and one of the good things is is uh the my latest dogs um so i've got a, a springer called griff he's only been operational for not even well uh, not even a year and he's had he's had about 80 fines eight in in less wow. than a year uh he's a machine he, he's an absolute machine but all of his training i was really lucky it was done on live fines on operations So when, when one of my other dogs had had a confirmed find, find a concealment, I would say to everybody trading standards and the police, don't touch it, leave it where it is. I'd run out, get the new dog and bring, bring the dog in and let him search. So my newest dogs are all trained on live, you know, operational concealments. Um, I'm very lucky to be able to do that. Um, yeah, so it's
0: there is no better education than teaching your dog in the environment that you're expecting it to work in. I mean, that's yeah. such an awesome to uh, be able to do that. And and, I, and you're right, it's the obviously a lot of people can't do that, but you know, <laughs> you know, one of the things I went through with friends of mine that were cops was when they were getting ready to get their next dog, the ones who put some thought into it, got their newer dog before their other dog retired. And they were constantly putting that, just like you did, constantly putting that new dog in all of those potential environments when they had the opportunity. And just like you said, those dogs were that much better than the previous dogs because they got education in the actual environment that they had to work in. So
1: that's that's a really good
0: thing. Yeah. Yeah, So the other question I had on that particularly was, what do you see? What is a What are the good qualities that you're looking for in a tobacco dog? What are the things that you find really uh, are important to have in that type of detection?
1: So I. So I've got uh, I've got three operational tobacco dogs at the moment. Uh, I've got uh, I've got a, a liver cocker. I've got a a liver and white springer and I've got a fox red labrador. Now, the fox red labradors are not my, my they're not my type of dog to be honest. Um the mm-hmm. only reason that I've got this fox red labrador is uh he was uh wanting a family wanted to rehome him and I went out tested him assessed him and actually he's a very good detection dog. He's had he's been operational for a number of years. He's had, you know, a good few hundred live finds. And, but what I'm, he's, he actually, I have to, when I, all my jobs are different. And so, so I'm, I'm searching a lot of shops, you know, a lot of, a lot of retail shops, uh, a lot of apartments, flats, h- houses, storage facilities. So I actually have to, to think which dog I'm going to use now the springer and the cocker are a lot more agile than than the labrador um, he has he has he has issues with stairs with if he can if he can if he can see through anything he has issues um, and he also he's he's from he's got really good um bloodlines he's from from good working stock uh labrador lines um but actually he's not that agile so you know i take him in some places and if there's a cardboard box he won't jump over it i've got to move the box so Mm. what i'm looking for i you know i need dogs that uh some days are not going to have fines you know we 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 do have not very often we pretty much have i mean yesterday i was working yesterday and we had four we, we found we had four fines um so we have we we have had eight or nine fines in a day um but i need a dog like most people i need a dog that's going to cope with not having fines um agility i do need an agile dog and a uh a Labrador's mm-hmm. sometimes a little bit too big for going under stairs going into basements into tight spaces so yeah so springers and cockers are are and, yeah, they're, they're, they're my, you know, they're my normal um, normal route for, you know, for tobacco dogs. And I, I've also got a tiny, tiny – so I have also uh, – I carry on the van a, another uh, little – really, she's a tiny Cocker Spaniel, um, Maggie, and she's a dedicated cash dog, banknotes. So ah, she's, t- she's tiny. Um, the reason that I trained her for cash is – I can actually take her up into the roof space of a house uh, without fear of her coming through the ceiling. Um, mm-hmm. And like you know, I couldn't I couldn't get a Labrador up there, and even the some of my Cockers and Springers are, are pretty big dogs, but she's a tiny dog. So yeah, so when I get dogs in, I sort of have a think. You know what what role you know would this dog be be suited to? And yeah, there's a lot lot of thought goes into what job they're going to do.
0: Oh, for sure. And you brought up something that is a great question to ask you. Because of the real world environment, not having fines, how important is it in training, do you feel, to make sure that we also have searches that are blank? Well,
1: yeah, that's so I've I mean, some days I will have a training day uh so a whole day so i'll I'll take the dogs out sometimes i'll have help sometimes it'll just be me it's not ideal, but you know uh training detection dogs it's it's always handy if you've got two or three people isn't it you know or 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 an extra yeah. pair of hands um but if I go out, a normal training day for me would be would sort of start at nine thirty in the morning and and finish at three or four, and some days the dogs will have no fines you know, we we will do. It's so important. I've been on training days very recently with with other trainers and they've given dogs find after find after find, you know, two after two or three minutes of searching, dog gets the find. And then, you know, next dog out, three or four minutes searching and the dogs are getting four, five, six hits on a training day. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's... And then when I say, well, actually you know i take my dogs out and some days we won't have any fines. they're like really and i'm like well it's training you know the dogs and and inevitably you know what dog trainers are like we use the same places you know same places for oh, yeah. training as soon as you get the dog out the dog knows oh it's a training day you know um so it's it's really important to have to have blank days especially if they're places that you use for training all the time, take the dog there. Don't have a find. Yeah, work the dog. And you know, I I will. I'll also I'll work the dog. Typically during a. So I do about on a normal day for me. Yesterday I did about nine searches. Yesterday, all about twenty, 25, twenty five, twenty twenty five minutes long, uh, and I did nine of those and um so yeah so the dogs have got a so in train again in training you can replicate you know a 25 minute session without a find or Mm -hmm. a 10 minute with a fine so yeah having blank blank you know having no fines is is um you've got to get that make that part of your
0: training regime for sure And, and i think we both would agree on this a lot of times the reason why people put finds out, it's because it makes them feel good. The dog doesn't necessarily need the find. The human is the one that wants it because it bolsters our confidence in the dog because we saw the dog find the thing. But to the point that you made, what it turns into is three, four, five, six hits. And in certain detection dog disciplines, that is so uncommon. Yeah, and. Yeah. If, the, if in training we've created that expectation, then later when the dog is working, they're going – either two things are going to happen. They're going to realize this other area that's not my training area doesn't get me anything, so not put much work into it. Or the other aspect is the dog – expects they should constantly find something. So when they can't find something, they're bound to pick something because they want to get reinforcement. They should have had it by now. It's been three minutes. What am I, I gotta have a fine. So I'll pick this stinky thing over here and, and show you some change there. And then the handler is of course, react uh, in kind. And then now we've got false problems because we're not preparing, like you said, getting the dogs used to doing blanks. And I'm just like everybody else. Years ago, I didn't do that very often. Now I make sure I introduce blanks in the lineup stage. So when I'm doing the ORTs, the wheels, the whatevers, I incorporate blanks at those stages so that way they understand zero is a possibility. And if they do it right, we get a level of reinforcement and that changes, depends on what we're doing. But it's, like you said, it's so critical to make sure that we teach what zero is and zero can be reinforcing. You know, searching is reinforcing it's fun yeah. and you get something out of it and it's, you know, yeah, yeah, it's good stuff, and, which leads and, me to, go ahead.
1: Sorry. I, all I was going to say was the other thing which I, which I do now and which is something that I never used to do is, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe, I'll maybe search do a, a training search for, for 30 minutes, take the dog out of the environment, and then I'll go and throw a, throw a ball, you know, um you speak to some I, I still i tell some handlers i was telling some handlers this only a couple of weeks back i said on this after this training we, we, we i think it was about an 18 minute search i said yeah that's good and the handler was like we haven't found anything and i was like no it's a it's a blank there's nothing here oh my dog's going to be a bit pissed off and i'm like it's okay we'll go outside and throw the ball and he was like what but he hasn't found anything and i'm like no But he's searched for for 18 minutes. He's done a a really good... And is it okay to throw the ball? And I'm like, of course it is. Get him out there. You know, throw the ball. What, every time? I said, well, perhaps not every time, no. But there's nothing wrong with taking him. So that's the other thing. You know, rewarding for a a good search now and again is, you know, is another thing that I do now.
0: Oh, for sure. And, and, like... I tell people the version I say is the dog. I want to reward the dog for being correct. So if the dog finds something and it's correct, we reward that. If a dog searches something and there's nothing there and they correctly showed me nothing, I need to reinforce that. I want the dog to understand they are, this is reinforcing an eater. But if I'm only reinforcing for odor only, I risk the increased potential for the dog to want to find something even when nothing is there and then depending on certain dogs will randomly pick whatever something smells to them and goes i'll try this because this is the only way i can get reinforcement well then i'll just choose something that's not every dog but there's a lot of dogs that do that we've all seen it if you've done detection long enough and just like you said i want to reinforce the right thing and the right behavior they searched why not take them out and we go play and yeah. like you said, do I do it every time? Of course I don't do yeah. it every time, but I do it more, way more often than I used to. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah.
0: and I, and I actually stole something from the Austrians. I, I watched them do something really cool this past year and they'll, they have like a position they, they call it middle. So the dog will come between their legs and they use that as a starting position sometimes, but they also use it as a dog is searching and they've been searching for, let's say 10 minutes They'll say middle, the dog comes to their middle. They give a little, maybe a piece of food or treat or pet the dog or just do something. Let the dog kind of recalibrate. But like they said, hey, that dog, you see how he climbed the sofa and got up the wall and went really high and sniffed that thing all by itself and came down? I want to call him back to me so I can give him something. And like they said, you have to be careful you don't do it frequently because then, yes, you may have dogs that will try to go to the middle and offer that to get something. He yeah. goes, just like in anything in training, you find the right balance, balance to it. But what he what I saw that I liked was it was a way to reinforce something they liked in the searching. It was also a way for them to stop the search safely. If a dog's doing something middle dog comes right back to middle. Wait a second. And the last part I thought was really cool is in this one case, a dog alerted to something. The handler was like, well, I need to look into this call. So the dogs on full indication calls a dog to middle dog comes to middle. He tells the dog to wait. He walks over searches. Oh yep. Lo and behold, there's something there goes back to his dog, sends his dog back dog indicates and he marks and rewards. And I thought that's actually a nice little tool to have in certain situations where maybe the handler was not comfortable and and rewarding due to the operational environment or what have you. And so yeah, that was something for me I've I've added to my toolbox to share with people and to utilize myself because like the guy said, there's three ways to stop the search. My dog finds something. We're, We're stopping at least for the moment, depending on the type of dog I have. Second part is I call off the search because there's something that needs to uh, safety wise or whatever. I need to stop the search. And the third one is the dog didn't find anything, and I can read that and I end the search. And yeah. he goes, I I want to be able to potentially reinforce any one of those three things depending on the reason. And yeah. I do I need to reinforce any of them all the time? No, because once I've introduced a variable reward schedule, I can use all of these things and my dog is happy and clear. But like you said earlier. They, they do this in training. So it looks no different than when they're operational and they do the same things. It all looks the same. The yeah. dog's much more clear. Yeah. The The thing I wanted to add when it came to blanks is it made me think of this. Conservation detection. You do conservation detection, too. Tell us a little bit about the conservation world and what you've learned by being involved in that part of detection.
1: Oh so yeah I've done a a, a couple of um uh, a couple of projects uh, in the conservation world and I'm I just about to start another one here in Wales actually um but yeah one of the biggest projects that I've I'm invo- currently involved in which I've been involved in since 2019 is um is actually a, a United States funded project in Indonesia oh so um the your INL uh your INL um fund project in indonesia uh for the wildlife uh, detection dog program over there and my role is is quite a nice role actually i'm basically the auditor so i'm the i'm the uh, the auditor the assessor for uh, for the for the whole project um I was brought in at the start of the project before there were dogs there to, to advise on uh, carrying dogs in vehicles, kennel builds, uh, operational deployment of dogs, training of dogs, uh, training of handlers, uh, writing SOPs. Um, so, yeah, it's so, um, well it's, a, it's a, a big project it's a you know it's a few million dollars uh worth of uh of project and um yeah the the dogs as you you're probably aware have been supplied and trained by wesley from uh mm-hmm. from the netherlands so uh yeah i was i was put in the the awkward position of of uh basically assessing the the the, the dogs and the handler training and everything that Wesley was uh, having an input on. Yeah. And yep. it's a really, a nice project. Uh, as I say, since 2019, I've been involved with that.
0: What is, what are the, the things that you look at in the conservation world that you go, wow, that's, that's significant work to try to do with a dog uh, as a detection dog.
1: Well, it's, yeah. I mean, that they've, Looking at the the project in Indonesia, I mean they've got uh, they've got phenomenal task really because they're they they're they're deploying with their dogs to I mean one of the one of the 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 like ferry terminals ports that the dogs are deployed to. I mean I've got we've got two ferry ports here in this particular county where I live. And there are four sailings a day. That's it. They go across to island, mm. to southern islands. So there's four sailings a day. The do- so there's there's not much freight. There's not much tr- you know car traffic or uh, passengers, foot passengers. One of the f- one of the ferry terminals that the conservation dogs are uh, wildlife dogs are deployed at in Indonesia. There's 150 sailings a day. There are that yeah thousands upon thousands of you know of trucks of buses and so that they've got the phenomenal task of trying to search you know as as much of that as they can because the locations in indonesia are hot spots for for smugglers for animal parts and and whole animals live animals dead animals um and you know they're looking for things like, you know, for scat and feathers, you know, from birds. And you know, you know as well as as me, you know, when you're looking for, you know, when you're looking for for you know, I don't know, fifty grams of semtex. There's quite a there's quite an odor with that, or or pe four or something like that. Some of those explosives, you know, on a bus. You know, when you're looking for feathers in bags you know on buses under buses you know the the task is quite phenomenal but again it's one of those jobs that you know humans have realized that one of the best methods of detecting you know these items that are being smuggled is is by using detection dogs so um yeah it's quite uh it's quite a task really
0: yeah, I was gonna say some of the videos I've seen that Wesley has shown is just like with you and the tobacco dogs, the methods of concealing these uh, like you said, animal parts or animals uh alive, is they're trying to come up with all kinds of ways to fool a handler. Um or even fool the dog, of course, but they know if they can fool the handler. But it's it's again comes down to that ability to read the dog. Those environments do not allow for that really nice, perfect, pristine sit indication because what they're searching, there's really no place to sit. They like you said, they could be on top of cargo, they're going underneath a vehicle or in a really tight, small vehicle trying to search, you know, what hidden compartments are in there. Just like many of those, again, in the drug dog world or other worlds where your your thing you're looking for is intentionally concealed from you. Um really make sure that you have to be a good handler at reading your dog's subtle cues that they're on odor. I'm sure you've had to see some really crazy stuff over there, especially in Indonesia, where there's so many different kinds of things that are distracting to a dog.
1: Yeah. And, you know, when you're looking for, uh, you know, when you're looking for uh, for birds, maybe uh, critically endangered birds that are being smuggled. So you're looking for a helmeted hornbill. And someone's, you know, got it on a bus and they're trying to get on a ferry. And that same bus, there's a guy with a box full of chickens. You know, it's, Uh, it's, 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 you know, and, and they're two different people. You know, one of them, one of them is a smuggler he's he's just got his you know his helmeted hornbill that it might be dead you know wrapped in clothing in a bag or whatever the other guy who's got a box full of chickens he's not there to as a as a as a a, intentionally to distract you but he's got a box full of chickens and you know i mean yeah i mean some of the things that i mean i've worked in you know in ports in the uk here i've worked in uh, I worked you know uh, as a handler over in france um you know for for our border agency uh for two years um Calais is one of the one of the busiest you know ports in europe um but Indonesia yeah and you know when it's it's quite a dangerous environment as well it's uh, as you might have seen in some of the videos um you know, there's no lighting, no one's got high vis you know, health mm-hmm. and safety. They don't believe in high-vis coats or, or flashlights mm-hmm. or helmets and goggles. Um, and you're trying to search buses which are still running and you're surrounded by you know, by police police officers looking at the dog, you've got the handler, then you've got quarantine officers, and then you've got other people just milling around and it's pitch black. And and then and then you come back to social media and there's, there's a dog, you know, giving a perfect indication on a brick wall. Exactly. You know, it's just they're just too totally, you know, we place a lot of, you know, we expect a lot from our detection dogs. And those dogs out in Indonesia, probably like many other dogs around the world, you know, we expect a lot of them. And, um, yeah, I wouldn't, I do wonder sometimes whether we expect too much from them.
0: Sure. Or maybe we aren't preparing them for what we expect them to go do, which is the other part of the thing is those are lessons I have learned for sure. Like, just like you said earlier, you know, you're like, oh, okay, I can do this. So this is fine. And then all of a sudden you get in the real world and you're like, whoa, okay, wait a second. I wasn't quite ready for that way of doing it. Or, uh, my dog didn't do the thing I thought do for the past three months in training. Um, uh, yeah. what's happening here. So yeah, it's, it's amazing yeah. what the real world will teach you, um, which really actually makes you more prepared on the training side. So with that said, and it was one of the last two things I wanted to talk about. So you'd mentioned the you the, using Kong earlier as how you started some dogs. And that's, obviously a well-known method. It's been used now for lots of years, but it's still a very controversial method, more so in the United States than anywhere else that I've seen. It's very commonplace in Europe and things like that. Um, What would you say, though, is pros and cons to, if you're going to go down the route of using Kong to to help get a dog started before you actually go to whatever your target odor is, what is a pro and con that you have to consider knowing that, operationally, it's not uncommon for someone to have a Kong-type dog toy in an environment or something maybe similarly made with a product like that. But let's just stick with the Kong for right now. What would you say is pros and cons if to tell somebody if they were considering going that route?
1: Right, okay. So I've got to be careful what I say now because uh, I'm I'm pro-Kong um, and yep. this year, actually, uh, only back in July, I met the owners of Kong. Um, they were visiting. Okay. They were visiting uh, Kong UK, um, uh, and I actually had to give a demonstration with one of my dogs in front of. Uh, I can't remember their names now, but the the two current owners or directors of Kong were over, so uh, I had to give a demo in front of them. Um, I like Kong. They they send me packages every few months. Um, I, what I do though is I actually when I when I get new dogs, I I leave the choice of of how we're going to develop the detection training. I leave the choice to the dog. Um, I have some dogs here at the moment that uh and this is a real pain in the arse as well because it happens all the time i get a dog out on a on a on a job i've done it this week i took the dog in um, i took the dog in and uh, the dog had a find i marked it with a click and i threw the kong in and i forgot that that dog doesn't like kong so i have (laughs) to clip clip the dog up hand it to someone run out and get a tennis ball so the the first thing that I do with with all my dogs is I'll take them out and you know assess them do some training and I use Kong and I use tennis balls and I I leave the choice down to them. So um so so, so as I've just said some of my dogs you know are not interested in a Kong, they want a tennis ball. Uh, a couple of the others, you know, are are specifically, you know, like like the Kong I like I like using Kongs because you can uh my the dishwasher here at the kennels at the moment, uh or the autoclave is um is full of them. Uh mm-hmm. you can you can you can boil them to you know to clean them. Um you can cut them up. Uh, as you know, you can cut them cut them up down to minute mm-hmm. pieces. Uh, you know, imprint use them for imprinting, for training. The good thing is is you'll find Kongs all over the world. So if you're you know, you're ever in a position where you haven't got one, you can you can always get a Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, tennis balls. I think people forget as well that actually, you know, this this current sort of trend that we've been going through, people cutting up Kongs into tiny pieces and putting them in walls. We actually did that with tennis balls. You know, yeah, uh, I remember that. My cool. <laughs> you know, we did that with tennis balls. the the, only, the bad thing about tennis balls is, is yeah, you can put them in a washing machine. I I put them in a washing machine, tennis balls with dogs' blankets and dogs' towels, and and they they clean up okay. But you do have to throw them away, you know, after a period of time. Mm-hmm. Whereas I've got kongs here, which are years old. You know, you can. Continually use them. Um, then, as as you've said, you know there is that thing. Every, I mean, pretty much, you know. Again, going back to social media, the amount of people training on Kong in uh, today. I've been on my Instagram, and you know, Brazil, Brazil, There's handlers and trainers in Brazil using them. Argentina, you know, U.S., Canada, um, Israel. Um, I do wonder you know what uh what a dog would ha- have dogs come across Kongs in 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 freight in in luggage and mm-hmm. you know what and and what are those dogs trained on are they are they bomb dogs you know have they have yeah. they been in, you know have they indicated on on luggage in airports and this kind of thing as you say they're quite and here also. I've got um, Kong sent me. You've probably seen them—a tiny Kong keychain. You know how many of yes, you know they, they are red Kong. How many people have got those keychains that are walking through an airport and a and a passive vexler or drug dog is is you know is following them? I I I don't know. Does how does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, well, no, it kind of does because. <laughs> Like I tell everybody, there's risk and reward to everything. And you have to decide, is using technique X going to give you more benefit or more risk? And just like you said there, with a bomb or explosive dog, yep, probably I'll not go that route. Now, me personally... Just like you said, for years I had used tennis ball, I had used other little things, odor uh, soaking towels with odor, all these different things. And then later, probably about eight, nine years ago, maybe a little bit longer, I thought to myself, why don't I just start with the thing I want them to find and make that the most valuable thing? And then, and how can I do that? Because of course, a toy already has intrinsic value to the dog, which is why we pick things like the Kong and tennis ball because they already want it so I can teach them really easy with it. Then I challenged myself and said, okay, that's that's nothing more in the beginning other than an odor. In the very beginning stages, it's nothing more than an odor that's become fun. Um, how can I do this as a trainer and teach them the target thing is fun? And then that's where, through Bob Bailey, through another one that Simon mentions, how i learned to turn a dog into an addict for an odor and that's just simply the delayed conditioning aspect like you smell this and if you smell this this happens and then of course as you already know the marking all that stuff makes that much easier i didn't really know that until i didn't get into markers until about 2010 2010 11 when i got introduced to it um And of course, now I'm working with one of the guys who's one of the most famous guys in the world for using markers, just in obedience and bite work and things like that. But for me, and and I took part of that back then in those days from seeing a video of Michael doing markers with obedience dogs, and at the exact same time I was dating somebody from SeaWorld who watched my detection and goes, why aren't you using a marker? And I'm like, what is this crap you're talking about? <laughs> and then soon she explained, I'm like, Oh, that's the stuff I was watching Michael do in a video and then she had shown me, of course, obviously with many, many, many other animals in the animal world, you can't, you, you can't just throw a toy at them or a food at them. You have to use a signal because they're too far away or they're in water or whatever it is. So it all came together. And like I said, I always tell people in the United States, the fear, Especially on the professional side with using Kong was being questioned legally. Is your dog trained to detect something that someone can possess legally? Yeah. And yeah. of course, a Kong. Yes. So I tell people, I'm like, look, you can use all kinds of things. Just decide for yourself pros and cons. And just like you, I'm I'm heavily towards toy as a the reinforcing reward item for the dog. I've also learned I'm willing to use food especially certain phases of training. If I can get a dog to like repetition, let's take a mal, a high drive mal, I can get some reps, you know, two, three, four reps really quickly with food as the reinforcer, but I'm going to end my session with their toy. Yeah. Whatever the last rep is. in that beginning, (laughs) I'm still going to end it with a toy. Um, but the food gets me the repetitions I need, especially when, as we both know, a lot of handlers may not have a release or a out with their dog. So they'll <laughs> do first toy delivery and then they spend the next two minutes choking the dog so you lose that. So I, I always look at, one, what is the detection discipline? What are we going to go do? What's my end goal going to be? What are we going to operate doing? Second thing is, okay, what are the pros and cons to whatever I choose? And you said it a little while ago, Each detection discipline brings something different in that another one doesn't have. So you have to be willing to be agile and flexible to adjust to meet that goal. And then just like we've been talking about, when you see a trainer only do something, the same thing over and over and over again, that leads me to assume that maybe their training system isn't too flexible and if that training system isn't flexible i have concerns with okay well then there might be too much rigid sides to this that prevents either the handler or dog from being able to adapt to whatever the real world throws at them yeah i'm good with just like you said when simon comes in comes in and teaches simon is very rigorous about the process the data collection the procedures that you're doing it. But he's the first to say, in this area is where I'm particular. But the minute we're out of this segment and I'm in my operational segment, I need to be really good at knowing my dog. And I'm hoping that my initial training where I had all those stricter procedures helps me be much better at knowing that dog operationally. Yeah. but as we both know, both of us are guys that are both like, oh, I hate that crap. But I respect it, and I know I have yes. to do it. But, yes. man, it's it's not my natural way, and I am – I would say I'm definitely less rigid than a Simon. I aspire. I respect him. I love that he can do that. I can do it in in shorter bursts. <laughs> But I, I. This is why guys like Simon exist because guys like me can't do what he does.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, he's a lovely guy, Simon. He's, uh, yeah, he's, oh. he's, 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 he's. Uh, I. He's one of. What I like about Simon is he's uh, when you talk to him, he's got such a calming and soothing voice yes. and and manner. You know, he he's uh, yeah, he knows his stuff. He's a he's a good he's a good good guy. A lot of time for Simon.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Like I said, I'm thankful for guys (laughs) like him because there's, I, I'm not like that. I can't do that. It's not in me. Plus, like you said, he's very, he's got a very calm demeanor, very calm personality. And I've had to learn to be calm because just like you, when we come from that military law enforcement world, we're ingrained with this, a level of intensity that's not for everybody. Mm -hmm, And people mm -hmm. like me and you can get sometimes misunderstood because of our intense in the moment levels of instruction or <laughs> intense in the moment how we work our dogs or whatever yeah. so this is why yeah. guys like you and i can gravitate really well together because this is how our backgrounds are we're similar
1: yeah <laughs> so and, we and, get it and and as i say you know with a, like anything but especially with the dog wheels you have all these you have all these different people you know if you can take just uh, one or two bits of information from all these different people. It's what makes, as, as you referred to, you know, your toolbox. Um, if you can take a bit from Cameron Ford, a bit from Simon Prince, a bit from Wesley, you know, it's all those little bits that make up you as a, as a dog trainer uh, and a handler.
0: Absolutely. So that leads me to my last question. What bit of advice <clears throat> would you give, somebody who's, let's just say they're working their first detection dog and there's so much information out there. What would you recommend somebody to, just to, like I would, like you would say to them, Hey, I'm glad you're in this world. But one of a, a very important thing to consider is what advice would you give them? What would that, what, what should they consider? Well, I, I Could would be something actually... like, like this, but real world's like that. But what would you do?
1: Well, I, I would actually, actually, that's a good question. And I would probably say what I, like I do say to people and that's you need to remember that not, not one, not one, not every, you know, not one trainer is right, you know, about everything, you know, you need to go out there and you need to, yeah, you need to look at social media and you need to read books and you need to, to, to make your own path. Uh, don't be dictated to, you know, by, you know, by a cult way or, you know, you need to make your own your, your own way in this world. I mean, I, I, I'm I really bad. I mean, I was really bad when I worked for the for the Ministry of Defence. I I was if someone told me black was black, I would actually go and research and see actually if black was red. You know, I, I never take – if someone tells me something, I will always Google or try and read or find out uh, and, you know, and see. And I question everything as well. You know, I, I think that's a, – it's, it's a good thing to, to 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 question everything and anything that, that you're told. Uh, I, w- I won't just, you know, accept things. Uh, it's got me into trouble. It still gets me into trouble. I'm not always willing to – you know <laughs> i'm not even to you know i i'm not a toe the line i'm not a yes man or a toe the line person you know so uh yeah i would would say to you know uh, and i would say read stuff i re i hate reading i i never used to read in, in school if you were to give me a book of poetry or a or a, a you know as uh uh as i know a uh, a fictional novel or something i i hate i couldn't read it i've got books i'm surrounded by books on dog stuff science you know um all sorts of things so i i tell people you know read this read that you know um and go out there and 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 research and, and do it do it the way that you want to do it and don't be yeah don't be dictated to by others
0: absolutely absolutely i'm Sitting here adjusting something real quick. So stand by one second. Hey, there we go. The, there was a little monitor piece that died off. (laughs) So the, um, I, I totally agree. I wasn't a big time reader myself and, but reading, the dog related books or like you said finding the things online have been all really really awesome to have um to help me be better and i recommend to everybody too now is read you know yeah. um i watching and videos know, and things like that are helpful but is really good yeah
1: and you know this is going to sound really yeah. bad as well i've learned so much from bad trainers and handlers and I, you know I worked, I worked when I was working Explodogs, I worked with, you know, I worked with, and again, this isn't, uh, this is going to sound really, you know, sort of bad, but, um, I worked with some retired cops and they'd been in, in on dog units for 20, 25 years and it was either their way or, or, you know, there, there was no other way. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, g- going back to clicker, one of those guys, I still keep in touch with him now. And, you know, he's a good friend and I tell him, you know, to his face, he, he still thinks that a clicker is witchcraft. He, uh, you know, know. He, 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 he will not use a clicker. Um, so yeah, but I, I have worked with some, and I'm not, not, I don't mean to make it sound as if, you know, I'm the best and I'm great and. But I have worked with some truly bad handlers and, and instructors. And I've but I'm quite thankful because I've learned so much from those bad handlers and instructors.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I, I've I've done the same. I've like you said, I've been a bad handler at times. I've screwed up and I make mistakes. And one of the biggest things I, I still do, of course. And one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm actually sharing, I'm doing a video series on doing some obedience with my detection dog, because of course, people always say, oh, obedience kills drive and blah, blah. And since I'm with Michael, I'm forcing myself to learn like, how he does it with a dog who I've never done obedience with. And I haven't done it his way. And he has little particular things about where your hands are, how you're moving and things like that. So I want to share with people how I'm screwing it up, my errors that I make, you know how I can improve. But the goal is to understand that, like you said, none of us are perfect nope. and we can still learn from those mistakes. We can learn from, hey, I may not agree with how that person trains at all or that's just not, you know, like you said, there's older systems that are still very you know, applicable, but you can also learn why you may not use that style because, yep. uh, or that method because- here is the pros and here's the cons to it and that, and understanding those is very important yeah the um i'm i'm just um finishing actually i've got in the office here uh, i'm just
1: finishing a book and it's the third time that i've read this book um and every time i read it i i actually like get something from it um, I'm not, sh- and it's. I don't, I'm not sure whether you whether well, you must be able to get it over with you. But it's a it's a book called The Cocker Man, Um, and it's a guy called oh, Hedley wow. Millington, and um, he's basically he's a he's a working cocker expert, a gun dog guy, you know. But as I say, I've just finished reading it for the third time, and in the final few paragraphs, there were things that I picked up on that I. You know, I haven't picked up on before. Um, so, yeah, reading. I mean, there's so many books out there. You know, reading, reading books and videos, and and listening to podcasts as well. I mean, I listen to your podcasts, and the, there's a, a a few other podcasts out there that I listen to. You can get so much from from listening to podcasts.
0: For sure. Which does actually had one more question I forgot to ask you earlier. So both of us obviously are Spaniel fans. We like our Spaniels. What do you see as a difference between a Springer Spaniel and a working Cocker Spaniel? Maybe it's how they work. Or maybe it's how you train them. What is something that you see that's a pretty big difference between Spaniel, between those two variants of Spaniel breeds that, because we both know a lot of people can look at it and go, oh, that's a Spaniel. They don't really see the differences. But what is a person like you who's a connoisseur of Spaniels, what is the biggest differences that you see between those breed types?
1: They're, they're very, you know, they are very, very similar uh, breed types. I mean, you know, obviously appearance, spring uh, springers generally bigger. Um, and, you know, normally liver and white or black and white. Um and then the cockers obviously come in multiple colours, and are, you know are a lot smaller. They are very, I mean, sp- speed and speed. They're they're you know they're, they're they're pretty sort of similar with with speed. I mean, I've having said that, you know, I've got a, a Springer here. My retired Springer um, is is about eleven years old. Fantastic dog to work. Um, he's retired now. Um, and yeah, he, he found, you know, just so successful and I thought he was the ultimate springer and I, I probably trained, oh, I would imagine over, over 45, 50 springers. And then I took on a springer, uh, an eight week old springer from uh, a girl, Michelle, she's a customs officer and she bred customs dog handler and she'd bred some springers. And I was offered one from, from the litter, so I, I took on this eight-week old. And you know, I thought I'd seen everything with Springers, and then this Springer comes along, and he's totally different. He was he's was actually a little bit slower, but a lot more methodical, uh, shorter mm. in the leg, uh, quite a, a stocky dog, quite a nice chunky head. He's, he, I mean, he's turned into a phenomenal dog. But again, there's me thinking I actually phoned her um months months into when I was training him. So he, he was probably between six and twelve months old. I phoned her and I said, um, you know, just you know, how quick are your springers and do they do this and do they do that? And and she was answering the questions and actually I met up with her then uh earlier this this year this year I think. And we were talking about these springers and and she said to me you got me really worried when you started asking those questions and i said you know uh i hope that i i didn't and she goes you were concerned that he was he was going to be you know crap or you know not good and i said yeah i was but you know of all the springers that i've i've trained this one is is just totally it's just totally different so so not even." within the same breed are they you know are they the same um so mm-hmm. yeah springers and cockers they're i do sometimes find the cockers uh i we i call them they a bit fidgety uh when yep. training training indications uh spring is generally a bit more solid with their indication and you know if you want to a stand or a sit or a you know a stand and stare or freeze generally easier with a springer than with a cocker you know having said that i've had a few cockers which it, it hasn't been a problem but i one of the main differences I, I reckon they can be cockers can be a bit fidgety but uh they're just i mean spaniels i just i just love them they're they're, they're so much fun Yeah,
0: I, I agree. I, this is my take on my, I haven't seen nearly as many Spaniels as you have. For me, what I see is my working cockers are, they love to just want to go run and check everything out. They want to sniff everything. And in the beginning stages, it's a little bit harder to get them to sniff the thing I want them to sniff versus they want to go sniff everything else and run around and, Do the thing that they do, which is a lot of flushing kind of behavior, right? They love to run wide open spaces, lots of cutting left and right and doing all that kind of stuff, but just sniffing their world. They just want to sniff everything. So where my springers have been a little bit more less crazy, they're still very high active dogs little less. And like you said, yes, definitely better about, they can hold still a little bit longer than the, than the, 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 Cocker Spaniel or the working Cocker Spaniel. Um, the other thing that I've noticed, this is again, just me and the dogs I've been exposed to my working Cockers seem to like to work for me, like the human They they like to be engaged where the Springer Spaniel, some of them can take it early. They're just happy that there's, I want to go do a thing. Um, they they'll collaborate with you but they're a little bit i would say almost a little bit more independent, independent. than yeah. a, a working cocker likes a little bit more collaboration is that ac- do you see the same things or yes. is it just kind of unique to what i've seen
1: yeah no i would say that probably uh, uh, sp- springers are a bit more a bit more independent um and the cocker's are you know uh, uh, i see a lot of a lot of people crit- do criticize springers and cockers for that waste of energy you know um, and I, when i'm tr- when i'm training handlers you know uh, there's a i i often say you know you've got a, a completely blank square room and it's got one radiator in it and you've put some cocaine behind the radiator you take a springer into the doorway the springer will do 30 laps of that room before it settles down and start searching same with a cocker as well you know um and then a the labrador you'll take it off the lead and it'll walk in and generally go straight to the radiator with the cocaine is you know mm-hmm. um yeah. so yeah people people always sort of are quite happy to criticize springers and cockers for that that waste of energy you know with a with that room search doing all those laps. But I think that's probably what I enjoy, you know, about, about work. And, uh, and it's not a, uh, the, the lab got the cocaine behind the radiator, the Springer and the Cockerwood as well. It's just, sure. it's a, it's a lot more fun. I think with a Springer or a Cocker, you know, I don't mind seeing I, I them do those laps.
0: Do. And, and I like that. I can even pick them up and search things that are higher. I enjoy being able to have something that I can, Work with at such a level that I can hold them, lift them up, have them do things, and they are totally happy to do it. Yeah. And where I can do it with other dogs too, but it's just easier, like you said, when you're talking about the tobacco dogs earlier. Having that smaller dog that you can lift up or put into things is a really nice little bonus.
1: Yeah, I, I currently my my one of my working cockers, which I've retired now, tobacco dog. I used to do that on a regular basis. I could pick him up. And I could, I could, I could pick him up in a room and I could task him to, you know, to air vents and sockets and, you know, whatever on a, and I could put him back on the floor and he would then move to where the, the target odor was. I, I miss that. I currently, I, it takes a bit of training to do that with a dog and I haven't, yeah. uh, the, the springer that I've currently got, you pick him up and he just wants to, play fight and wrestle so i haven't i i do miss that with a with a dog i haven't got a dog that i can pick up at the moment so yeah that's a you can't do that i couldn't do that with my fox red lab
0: yeah it's definitely a little bit harder so how do people find you because it it was funny when i was reaching out to you it was like apparently two or three years ago you had sent me a message about hey if you're looking for a spaniel let me know I didn't even see that until literally a week ago for whatever the reason was. I missed it. But so how do people find you? What kind of things can you help people with? Um, So I guess start off with like how they find you and what do you do? What do you offer?
1: Oh, so, uh, well, I'm on Instagram. Um, Yeah. So uh, I've got, yeah, I'm on Instagram at BWYK9. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, got a Facebook page. I do. I've got a few. Uh, I'm not, I haven't developed my, my YouTube. I've got a few, if people want to see some of the work that I do with, um, my springers and cockers and, um, the concealments and all the, you know, the fun
0: stuff that I we love find watching your, your deployment <laughs> videos. Those are so <laughs> cool to watch.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, you know, I've got a few YouTube videos, but Instagram and Facebook and, um, yeah, I mean, and as for for sort of what i do i mean i like to stay this is one of the things which i'm I'm quite keen on i like to i like to stay operational and and keep you know that's the way that i learn i like to be out there doing the job um and i you know and i do a lot of consultancy work i i work you know overseas for a number of customs and police departments um uh, yeah and advising on the use of spaniels um uh, i'll go to sweden now uh hopefully uh in the new year to do to do some work there Um yeah so i uh, you know i'm happy for people to get in touch with me and ask me questions and uh yeah and i know yeah networking and i you know i've supplied um really lucky to where i live you know i think the basis for me the basis of having good working cockers and springer spaniels for for detection work um is you've got to have good bloodlines and I'm mm-hmm. really fortunate I live in Wales which is obviously you know within the UK um and I'm surrounded by by people who work gun dogs and people who are keen to develop uh the 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 gun dog breeding so um very fortunate to be surrounded by springer spaniel and working cocker breeders so i i come across a lot of i've got a couple of new working cockers that i've taken in this you know this past couple of weeks um and i i so i source dogs for you know for overseas uh clients whether it be the the US or you know Sweden wh- wherever um yeah so good quality really good quality uh, mm. work in line springers and cockers yeah that's and that's yeah I like to keep busy basically
0: Oh, you definitely do. You are <laughs> one of the busiest people I know for sure. The And I'm excited to announce for everybody watching and listening that uh, Stu and I will be having having him on to do a webinar, which we will announce in the next week or two. Um, and we are in the very beginning stages of trying to figure out bringing Stuart over here to California, to Santa Rosa, to do some classes out here. So, again, if you guys are watching or listening, keep following if you don't already follow Stu, follow him. Uh, of course, on my feeds, I'll be sharing all this information as we get it all worked out with dates and things like that. So stay tuned for all of that. I can't thank you enough for spending the two hours here doing this with me, um, sharing your experience, which is completely invaluable. I mean, it's amazing that you, a lot of things that you've got to do as a, as a handler and trainer. Uh, thank you for coming on and, and sharing this information with everybody.
1: No, thank you, Cameron. No, it's been—I can't believe it's been two hours. I don't know where you can see that. Oh, there's a clock there. Um, yeah, no, it's flown yeah. by. It's just—it's just. I mean, I'm in my element, just talking about dogs to to dog people. Um, and I, uh, you know, it's this isn't this isn't work. This is a you know, it's it's a sort of a lifestyle for me. Talk, talking about dogs, it's not a job. It's uh, yeah, no. Thanks mm-hmm. for for inviting me along, and um, yeah, thank, can't thank you enough
0: absolutely and i look forward to seeing you when i come over to the uk in in april will be hopefully i can tag along and get to watch you do some things
1: yeah definitely No, you know you're more than welcome to uh, yeah come along on a few operations and uh yeah we'll get you get you handling a cocker or two on uh
0: on oh, some of the oh, jobs yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome i would love that oh my gosh that's like a dream come true there working working a cocker in the uk that's yeah that's like on a bucket. We can, sure. well,
1: we can solve oh, that. Wow. No problem.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, everybody, thank you for tuning in and listening and watching Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. All right. Stop.